Focus, Fuse FM's flagship news show. Hi, and welcome back to Fuse and Focus. I'm Rebecca, and today I'm joined by Sasha. Hello, everyone. Peter. Hello. Jess. Hiya. And Alex. Today we're going to be talking about the Kill the Bill protests, Nicola Sturgeon's fate in Parliament, the National Census and Global Britain. First up is Sasha on the recent protests. So I had written something for this, but um, the events of last night when um, 200 peaceful protesters uh, went down to College Green, which is where the protests were initially held on Sunday, uh, were met with riot police and um, police brutality in general after peacefully protesting they were they were sat up with tents um trying to get their message across um but after dark the police moved in um completely unprovoked with riot shields and um called them in a circle and then started beating them um uh, until they were forced to flee um so basically i want to open the discussion up to um points about how change is best achieved, um, first of all, um, political change that is, and then also um, discuss kind of the events of Sunday um, and where we are at right now. Um, so I'll start with the latter. Uh, so on Sunday, I went down at 2 p.m. Uh, for the start of the protest, um, and it was peaceful right up until uh, 6 p.m. in the evening when um, the protest moved towards Bridewell Street, which is um, where the police station is situated. Um, from my view, I saw bottles being chucked um, over, glass bottles being chucked over to where the police were standing. Um, initially, I didn't think they'd done anything, anything to provoke that necessarily. So um, I went over and naively tried to like calm people down, but that didn't work and obviously um, it all escalated into a full-blown riot with 20 police officers being injured and eight um, individuals being arrested. At that point I'd written a piece um, about how um, violence is not the way to go about um, inciting change and particularly in that protest when we were demonstrating to the government um, and other potential protesters that protests don't have to be violent even if they're disruptive they can be peaceful and productive but because of how the police have dealt with um, yesterday's protest um, my opinions have slightly changed on the matter and I want to have your input on it so um, this is where I want to open the discussion up to in terms of how best to achieve uh, change is, is peaceful protest the way to go about it in our situation right now is that what we should view first and foremost almost thinking of or considering the uh, last um, couple of days um, and the issues that have been going on should we look to more um, violent means is that our is that our only solution uh, first of all I should say uh, I don't want to be a Trump and incite violence um, so I, I think it's always best 
uh, to, to stick to the peaceful form. I mean, you can look across history, whether it's better to use violence or not. Uh, I, I guess the data would suggest, you know, being a bit of a nerd, that it, violence does get places. That's why people fight wars. But then is anybody a real winner in the end? Because every side is upset, every side is hurt, you know? That, that's, the, that's the moral question. You, you've got to ask yourself, do you want to take it to that next level? Will you be happy in the end if, you, if you're hurting other people? Say, say with the police. Now, I, I think they are being a bit scapegoated in this situation. They're, they're kind of trapped because um, they have to follow the orders of their superiors. Um, so they might not necessarily agree with what they're doing. And now that they, they've obviously uh, amassed quite a bit of hate from people that they're, they're, they meet at protests. And I do feel like they're trapped in the middle. I don't know how you guys feel as well but it's, it's kind of a difficult situation i think it's an interesting debate and um what is really kind of unearthed is the fact that violence has always been part of the political process um and we see with kind of the excessive use of police force that sasha described on the following day on monday um we need to remember that violence um the state has the monopoly on violence within its domestic domain and when people protest and they turn violence they subvert that domestic that state control monopoly on violence and why i think it's interesting in terms of the protests on sunday i think they went exactly against the point at least what i understood from the protest and maybe sasha can kind of develop this after i finished speaking because he was there on sunday i think it went against the point of protesting violently because for me uh, by my understanding there should have been a protest a peaceful protest designed to show the government that you cannot take away people's rights to gather together on the streets and peacefully demonstrate why they disagree with certain legislation certain policy directives and that is part of like a, an essential part of the political process of people being out in the open, being able to deliberate publicly and openly. And by turning um, the Sunday Bristol protests to violent means, and this was only a minority of people that did so, it gave the media, which backs um, the Conservative government and also the government itself, a mandate to go down even harder and crack down even harder on any form of protest, therefore going against exactly what we should have stood for on Sunday, which was the right to peacefully gather together as people or as one body and make our voice heard. That's my opinion on the matter of Sunday, but I think the actual question of violence and protest, um, going back to Alex's point of historical record, yes, the truth is that so often violent uh, resistance does produce better political effects if we're talking about it historically. If we want to take a recent example, we did um, a story which Sasha covered last week on the Arab Spring, uh, and we looked at 10 years since the Syrian uprising. If we look at other anniversaries of the Arab Spring, if we look at Egypt and Tunisia, both those nations uh, peacefully protested and um, received the immediate reward of the overthrow of their autocrats. But then if we look, especially at Egypt now, it's turned into more of a police state than it was under Mubarak, under el-Sisi. There is more oppressive forces being utilized against the people. So that's an example of how peaceful protest doesn't always necessarily um, give the aims that the people need. So yeah, it is, it is a complex and broad debate, but I'll, I'll let Sasha get back on kind of the protest of Sunday. Yeah, so I absolutely support that. I think it was a, minor, a minority of people and the mayor put it quite well, I think, was in that um, there were people who wanted to live out their revolutionary fantasies 
so there was a group who kind of started the commotion initially which was a group of like four adolescents um males who climbed on top of the police van and um started jumping on top of it um at this point um others took the advantage to like come and spray paint the van and it kind of got on from there but like one of the people who was jumping on top of the van was wearing a hoodie um that had um an image of a police van and then two silhouetted figures like jumping on top of it um so basically he was kind of like recreating his own idea of it and so like to this read the point he kind of like was pulling at it and like flexing it as if to show off um what he was doing um and so i think as much as there was a minority on sunday who um who who were doing acts like that and also just some people who had got drunk and um were looking for a fight basically uh, there were people like that but there were also people who were deeply frustrated with um the last year and how how in general our freedoms have been taken away and our uh, our dependence on the state has only increased and i think these people are desperate and also quite were quite scared and therefore felt that the only point only only position they were left with was um a point of retaliation and violence um in that like and that's and that is the point um peace to an extent works and it, and it must be an absolute last resort before we go to violence um for political change um but this bill doesn't allow for well it, it starts to encroach on those rights and it, and what and what that happens what happens then when that happens is um that you you make you make violence almost inevitable i think it was jfk who said those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable um and i've written down a quote from martin luther king as well here who 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 made the point too um it is not enough for me to stand before you and condemn riots it would be morally irreprehensible irre for me to do that without at the same time condemning the contingent intolerable conditions that exist in our society these conditions are the things that cause individuals to feel that they have no alternative than to engage in violent rebellion so at the end of the day it's the responsibility of the government to give our protect our rights for protest if they expect us to do so peacefully um so i don't know if anyone has has anything else to add like i'm the thing is with this story is 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 changing quite quickly um and so what i've written on sunday i don't necessarily agree with totally now um so i could use your help with your opinions to be fair to like work this out for myself i'm i'm going to go to um the protest on friday but yeah your contributions are really needed well i don't want to defend the outliers who did instigate violence because obviously that does kind of undermine a movement uh but that is also down to the critics who let outliers define a movement i do think it's paradoxical because you know, with the bill, they are kind of limiting peaceful protests. So what do you do in that scenario when people say, oh, they should have just, they should have done that. They should have protested peacefully to make a point. How is that making a point when that had already been restricted or governmentally prohibited? Um, and we've had this debate before. I remember last year with BLM and stuff in terms of rioting and looting and violence. And when is it justified? How outspoken should you be? Um, it is interesting. Um, I think obviously like if you can protest peacefully, you should, but that's not always the case. Um, I, I have a question actually. Um, so at this protest in Bristol on Sunday, mm. was, was it a mixture of people wanting different things? Oh, I, got, yeah. 
I got the, I got the feeling like it was that was almost part of the mess. Well, like, yeah. there, was, there was like several different almost factions wanting different things, and that's that's why you know the the separate the, it all happened. Yeah, you've hit on a really good point there. To be fair, like it was one of the first impressions I got when I went down was that there were a new and like a number of different signs of political ide- ideological persuasions and and um uh like groups that were there who all who all rallied together in order to protect their individuals rights to protest and their groups i guess as well um i don't know if that had anything to do with how it turned out in the end because i think that was a particularly small minority and they might have even been um uh separated across political differences but it was it was universal in in the numbers that turned out so i saw soviet flags anarchists uh blm protesters uh leaders of the blm protests um in bristol um and then numerous others and including children as well which was just part of the like the point as well that peace allows for everyone including young families to like participate in these sort of events and and getting part of the discussion and be around politics but when it turns violent as it did in the evening that like it was just it was chaos no one was having discussions about um about what was right and wrong and, and their political associations which is what, what protests can also be about even if you're not there for the same if you don't subscribe to the pl- same political views you can still have debates about it and then build off that and even amend differences but yeah um i don't know if that answered your question yeah i guess i guess i was i was maybe trying to get out of you that perhaps that the lack of unison meant that no one had the same idea of how they wanted it to turn out and perhaps that's why it did turn out so ugly you know there was there's no unison in wanting peace people people were a little scared to have um, to actually have organized it um the protest that's happening on um, Friday, I found out about from an Instagram page called All Black Lives Matter. But they have said in their post that it's not their event. They're just posting about it. So, yeah, you're right. I think perhaps the fear of being um, identified by police about this particular bill has, has caused disorganisation that has led to the, uh, this mess in the first place. Yeah, I was just going to say, I also think um, what's so interesting about this bill and is so worrying is the fact that the um, the British public seem to be quite complacent and quite embracing of the bill. I think I read that um, two in one people support the bill and um, a majority of people uh, said that the, the, the vigil for Sarah Everard shouldn't have gone ahead um, and the police were right to intervene. And I think that's what makes it a bit different to the normal conversation about violence in protest, because um, it just seems like the fact that the British public are kind of embracing these authoritarian measures and not too worried about the dangers they could impose um, is just just quite shocking and just makes you think that maybe we do need something quite big, like a big kind of event or um or protest to really show what's at stake and what danger and what what rights we're actually losing from this bill. I think, um, sorry, just to add to that as well, I, I mean, I think the, the fact that the bill was being planned to just slip through Parliament and probably would have if it wasn't for Sarah Everard's death, and if that didn't raise so much attention to it, 
I think that just highlights that point even more. Yeah, I think I think that's a really, really valid point. And I've got kind of two things to say, uh, one relating to Jess's point and one to Alex. Firstly, relating to Jess's, I think what would be good for the British public is for us to take um, take a page out of the French playbook, so to say, because I, I, I think that within French political culture, if a bill like this was passed, thousands of people would be on the streets against uh, any such legislation that our government is trying to uh, put forward. And we spoke about this um, briefly last week in relation to um, the Sarah Everett case. And I think, um, Jessica, you said that maybe a significant event is needed to mobilise people. Maybe that was kind of the initial event uh, to kind of raise awareness and mobilise about not only the necessity of valuing um, kind of women's safety on streets, but also the right to protest. Because the, the, the policing uh, that we saw uh, of videos, especially at the vigil of Sarah Everand at Clapham Common, was so heavy handed, it was ridiculous. And um, that violence breeds violence. And the violence that we witnessed at that protest that was completely unwarranted to uh, the women and the men that were there to pay their respects, then birthed what we see, the ripple effects in uh, Bristol of people that are angered by the government and also angered by the heavy-handed policing. So, like I said, violence breeds violence in that sense. And um, in relation to Alex's point about um, maybe a problem was the fact that um, the movement wasn't united and there were factions within it. The thing is, very often, there is no complete unison amongst protests and revolutions that protests birth. They're completely fluid, fast-paced events. Um, they're heavily contingent. So, um, really discussing the events in Bristol, we need to kind of unpack like hour by hour how the situation progressed. And um, I think I still stand to my point. Uh, I don't, I would never say like outright, I have condemned the use of violence in this protest because I think that's a ridiculous statement to make because there's so many contingent factors as to why people would protest because people rightfully are angered by the government and you can't take that away from them. But at the same time, I do think that um, what I would like to see personally, and I like that um, another kind of movement is happening on Friday in Bristol. I think more cities should should do the same, not necessarily violent protests, but more people should come out on the streets and make their voices heard that they are angered by this bill and they will have their voices heard by peaceful means. And if our government keeps sliding towards authoritarianism, then maybe violent protest may it will it will happen more often with the quotes that um, Sasha put from JFK and Martin Luther King and in back going back to that point that violence breeds violence. And I liked how Jess commented on the worry how worrying it is that the British public are so complacent about it because what will it take for people to put their foot down? How far can the government go with authoritarian measures before people realize this is too far? We're having our rights and freedom of speech stripped away from us. Do you think this, sorry to interject quickly, do you think this complacency is due to the pandemic though? And do you think that they, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to be ageist, but I, I assume that a lot of these people that think they would have just let the bill pass are probably the older generation and they probably just want to get out of this lockdown as quick as possible. And they're probably thinking that the best behavior possible from everyone is needed to get out of it quicker. I, I don't know, just, just the opposite side of opinion there. Yeah, it's definitely a possibility. I mean, I was hesitant about going in the first place because of COVID. Like, I've been been very mindful of the rules for, for so long, especially during the first few lockdowns. I was 
I was worried about it. I have asthma personally, so and my family suffered from it. So it's been very um, cautious. But there comes a time when you have to put your foot down. And I think it's possible that the government has taken advantage of this laziness, basically, of the people. Um, and the fact that they've seen that they can get away with so much and asking people to do so much by staying indoors for this last year, that why not just put this one more measure through? Because if they do have the powers, then it doesn't really mean much to the government itself. It just allows them more control over and and an ease of an ease that they didn't have before um, to put down dissent, really. Um, but I think this is more long-standing than um, than the pandemic itself. It might have exacerbated it and it put potential protesters off going to these events. But I think this is a general. Um, political disengagement that our society has has kind of fostered um for for decades now um, um and because we're simply not taught about politics as um an important part of our lives where it's merely a career option for the most part it's it's a degree that you choose to do many of my friends who are like who who are intelligent and i get on with very well and have ideas like and beliefs and values will say to me that they're not politically engaged um, and that really irks me because if you're part of a society which we all are and you have ways and understandings of how you should be around other people and that is being politically minded it's just about um, being given the tools and then also given the motivation to actually participate in in the society and the democracy that we have which I don't think our government has done and I'm not saying this is like a crony couple of people at the top of um, society, top-down instigation, conspiracy stuff. This is just, this is our, this is our laziness built up over time, which has led to, to bills like this being able to be passed and, and, and not challenged in the way they should be. I think I really I'll leave like your, your comments on friends who say they're not political, because I think, you know, declaring that you're apolitical is inherently a political statement because that means you're being complacent, you're not voting for opposing policies, you're kind of, it is also a pri like privileged and oblivious statement to make, um, because by not participating in political culture, you are paving the way for certain political decisions to happen. Yeah, but it's, uh, the thing is, I don't think it's necessarily their fault, like in part, they're responsible for developing those ideas, but they also have to be given the means to do so. And I mean, like a lot of people potentially like struggle with that because they've never been taught about it. Like, I don't think I was polit particularly politically minded if we want to use that phrase before I got to uni. But since I studied politics and history, I was given the tools and the information in order to form my own opinions and then articulate them, which a lot of people aren't given, aren't given that. And I, my family's also quite political. So they, they, they helped me along with that and, and gave me things to read and what have you. But if if our society doesn't really engage in that way and we have a democracy as we do, it makes it very easy and very um, very easy to manipulate and, and put through legislation that people don't really understand but will have deep significant impacts on, on their lives. So this one's the latest news coming out of Scotland. Uh, that Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has survived a vote of no confidence following an inquiry into her mishandling of a cross-party sexual harassment investigation into accusations against Alex Salmond. 
the controversy surrounding Sturgeon raises questions about her future in the SNP and a possible Scottish independence referendum. The inquiries cleared Sturgeon of breaching the ministerial code, much to the dismay of MPs who had hoped her possible resignation would suspend the likelihood of a referendum. If she secures a majority in May, she is bound to push for a referendum. So what I'm asking is, what are everyone's thoughts on Nicola Sturgeon and on whether Scotland should have another referendum? I think that um, a lot of senior Tories or just in general members of the Tory party uh, would have watched this whole situation unravel with absolute glee because it has greatly diminished um, Nicola Sturgeon's credibility and ability to carry forward uh, a confident referendum vote. Um, the SNP has been infighting um, for a few, good few weeks now, and it has not only tar tarnished Sturgeon's, um, Sturgeon's reputation, but it has also tarnished the reputation of the SNP. I was reading an interesting article um, that looked at this question of um, Scottish separatism and the chances of um, the fall of the Union. And this was an issue that has been prevalent in British politics for many years. And last year, it kind of started gaining momentum again about the prospect of a new referendum. Um, my personal opinion on kind of devolution is that people should have the right to make their own choice about whether they want to be part of the United Kingdom or whether they want to devolve to a smaller nation state. It's always within the people to have that decision. Uh, but it would it would be damaging not only to the UK, but to Scotland in terms of international relations. So it is. It's, it's, an, it's an interesting debate. I do think that um, the events of um, the inquiry and although Sturgeon has been acquitted, it has greatly tarnished her ability to carry through a more credible uh, kind of campaign for Scottish referendum. I don't know what the others think about this. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think um, what's really interesting about this is obviously with devolution being quite new, the fact that Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond I feel have been sort of such pioneers for the SNP independence and Scottish politics. Just the fact that they managed to receive such a landslide um, and then with that obtained the first referendum. Um, I think it's just it's interesting to see that now they're, they're causing the demise of the success that they actually created. Um, and I'm not sure if um, Nicola Sturgeon did resign. I'm not sure who would take over and whether they'd have the same momentum and whether they'd be able to um, facilitate a second referendum, really. But, uh, yeah, similar to Peter's point, I think the Conservatives are definitely loving it. And Ruth Davidson, obviously, she called the vote. So I think, um, yeah, I think they'll probably push on on all of this and hopefully, um, I forgot what my line of thoughts is. Well, I'll, I'll just put in some random nonsense in between then. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but the past two SNP leaders are named after fish. So there you go. <laughs> Probably thank you. <laughs> thank you for that observation. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's, a fun, that's a fun little observation there. I think um, <laughs> what, is, what is also interesting on this point though is, um, other separatist movements on the continent and how they uh, will be received and how they progress. Um, so obviously there's been a lot of affinity between the Scottish independence movement and the Catalan independence movement. And uh, we saw this year there were elections in Catalonia and um, once again, there was kind of slow progression towards um, people within the Catalonian region of being pro-separatist. Um, so I do think that events on the continent and how they develop, whether 
say if because um, also what's really interesting in the in the Catalonia Scotland comparison and which I guess is a way to because we always we always tend to criticize uh, our government or look at issues negatively but I think that uh, what we can be proud of is the fact that if we compare us to Spain and Spanish government, uh, the Spanish government's handling of the Catalan crisis, they're, like if we speak of authoritarianism, the way the Spanish government handled uh, it by putting senior Catalan politicians in prison, that is a uh, heavy-handed authoritarian rule. And um, th there is respect between um, within the nations of the union, and we haven't seen any of the scenes uh, of the severity of the scenes that are that we're seeing in the Catalan case. So, also kind of shedding some light on this issue, I think. There are also things to be proud of, and that does stem from a long-standing tradition in this nation of democratic deliberation and democratic representation, and kind of following this back into discussion of the bill and um, protesting for the bill. It's, this is why it's so important for people to come out on the streets and fight for the right to protest peacefully, because this is all part of our political culture. Just going on the, the subject of devolvement, would you? What, what are your guys' views on devolution because personally I think it'd be very bad if we lost Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland because just looking at the way how Brexit has happened and how we're already falling out big time with the EU and the EU falling out big time with us I don't think it would be wise uh, and I don't think it's good for trade or anything like that. I think that, that that's spoken from an English perspective on the issue though um, there, there are merits to both arguments, as as there so often are. I do see the, the merits for devolution, and I think principally on the basis of if a community of people, so we're talking here about the Scottish community, if they choose that they would rather, um, and they have a majority mandate for, wanting to devolve from the nation and form their own nation state, then that is within their right. And uh, the rest of the union cannot then enforce um, being a member, a, a member nation of the union upon them. But yeah, like you said, there will be, there will be deficits and disadvantages to de devolution. If we're talking about the UK and its place in the world post-Brexit, Scotland is a key part of that and a strong union is a key part of our image in our conduct of international affairs. And it would greatly damage Britain's prestige in that sense. But then from a Scottish perspective, uh, obviously people would say the opposite. So it's complex question it depends where you stand on the matter and whether you're a Scottish yeah I think not. I think you've you've got it right there it's definitely it's it's really difficult um as as a man with Scottish heritage uh, my middle name is Graham I I would just like to say that I I would I would be very sad if it had happened but then again as you said it's it's deeper than people's middle names it's more about how they get treated by the English government and how they've been forgotten for so many generations so I, I I think it'll come down to anger with the Conservatives, if I'm honest. Yeah, and I think it's especially the fact that Scotland is so um, different culturally to England. And obviously we have such a Westminster style of politics here that for someone in Scotland, it must be really hard to see someone like Boris Johnson and the cabinet, who are all very Oxbridge, running a country that is so different and that a lot of people in Westminster probably don't know much about. Um, I mean, I think in um, the diversity in the Scottish um, Parliament is incredible. I think the, I don't know what the latest um, figures are, but I think in 2015, they had 
um, just two people that were privately educated out of all the MSPs. Um, and they had a wide range of ethnicities and um, quite an equal split between the genders. So even things like that, seeing the, the diversity in, Scot in the Scottish parliaments compared to um, how similar everyone seems in just the English cabinet and how that disparity, I think, must be hard for those in Scotland. And I can actually sympathise with those that want to support independence. On the point of multiculturalism, I uh, had a nosy at the SNP website to try and find more MPs with fish names, uh, and they all seem to be white. So I don't know whether that's telling of the SNP or telling of something else, but I just thought I'd throw that out there. I love that you came across that because of your fish intrigue. Yeah, of course. Hardcore research. In the interest of time, let's move on to Jess's story on the UK census. Um, yeah, this is just a quick one. Just um, obviously the census was due in on the weekend. And I just uh, thought I'd just shed some light on basically what the census is and the fact that the one we just had could have possibly been the last one. Um, so the census is basically a snapshot of life every 10 years and it's all done based around one specific day so all the questions are about one day in everyone's life um, and it's although it's a really tedious and boring process I think from a holistic view it's actually really important it's used by loads of charities and um, schools universities job centers um, and the questions, it's interesting to see how the questions have evolved and developed alongside societal interests. So, for example, in the 1950s, apparently they would ask whether you had an outside toilet or whether anyone in your house was specifically a lunatic or an idiot. Um, but now they're asking things like uh, what gender you identify with, um, sexual orientation. So it's just interesting to see how that develops and evolves along with um society and um yeah so the uk's national statistician has said that the one we just had um is probably the last one it's a really expensive process apparently it was estimated to to have cost 906 million pounds for and that's just england and wales um northern ireland and scotland have a different process and um i think just at the moment with the abundance of data that surrounds us the uh, ONS are starting to realize that the census isn't such a important data collection source um, so I think they're looking towards other areas that they can utilize data from to create something similar to the census um, and yeah just using other kind of administrative data to create a more sort of nuanced approach that is also more cost effective. So yeah, I just found it interesting that the could be the last one and wondering if anyone's going to specifically miss it. <laughs> uh, me, no, but I did, I did like it was every 10 years. Uh, it's like you knew when, where you were in the world. You had your World Cups every four years, yeah, your Olympics every four years, and then your census every 10 years. Just a, a point on about the, where, where they could get the data from. Um, could they have just bought all the data that they gathered from Facebook for a fee that would be a lot less? Because I know Facebook do have a lot of data on us. 
Yeah, I think what's special about the census, which is an area that is going to be hard for them specifically to try and source elsewhere, is that all the data is really localised. So it's the only uh, survey that is really specific to each area. And that's also another reason that it's so important, because um, it it feeds back into policymaking in these specific areas for things like transport or um, schooling, um, things like that. So... I don't think you could get that same uh, specific information on things like Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, I actually did a, I did a market research module last year, which wasn't just about marketing, but generally about gathering information related to specific demographics. And obviously pretty much all centered around the census. And it was really interesting to see how they categorize people and neighborhoods into you know, lower income families or what, it was very much divided into like classes or student neighborhoods or blah, 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 whether it was uh, more immigrant based. It was interesting to see. Um, and I'm not sure how they can replicate, as you said, that kind of localized knowledge in the future. Yeah, and I think at the moment as well, there's, um, well, despite there being calls for it too, the last one we've just had to have been the last one. I think they're also saying that they uh, are different. So a, a different group of um, professors are saying that there should be another one in a few years um, to sort of create a more representative census because obviously the one we've just had would have been so unrepresentative of um, English life because of the pandemic. So. Uh, just to see where we're at in a few years and <clears throat> fully understand the implications that the the pandemic have had and create a more representative sample, which is quite interesting. So, Yeah, I, that is interesting, because I do know Scotland delayed theirs by a year, didn't they, to try and get over that. So, yeah, that, that would be interesting to see where everyone is, whether the whole country's just fled um, after the pandemic or not. Well, I was filling it out. I found it interesting thinking that, oh, if this were for another 10 years, this data refers to my one year living situation in this student house. And I'm sure that's the case for thousands of people across the UK. Um, maybe 10 years is too spread out anyway. <laughs> so today we're finishing the story, the search for a global Britain. In this week's discussion of British politics, Fuse FM investigates the ever developing political term, global Britain, asking the question whether this term signifies an actual policy drive or is it mostly Johnsonite ideology and rhetoric? As ministers look for ways in which Britain can benefit from, uh, from Brexit, the Johnson ministry has been looking to cast its policy and ideological drive into a new orbit further afield from the European bloc. At midnight on December 31st, 2020, the United Kingdom completed its withdrawal from the European Union. Upon signing a trade deal administering the relationship between the two sides, London has dramatically claimed by sections of Brexiteers was unshackled from the corpse that is the EU. As the new year came into being, the anticipated dream of a global Britain, long in the making by the Leave campaign and the pro-EU purged Tory party, was birthed out of the EU corpse. Escaping that Boris Johnson calls the regulatory orbit of Brussels was at the heart of the Vote Leave campaign. Revisioning Britain's destiny, the Prime Minister sold Brexit on the expansive promise of a, quote, new Elizabethan age. A supposed British resurgence around the globe, where Britons remoulded in the image of their adventurous ancestors, could set sail for new global horizons, creating lucrative trade deals, re-engaging with allies on London's terms, and asserting Britain's calling as a, quote, force for good in the world.
All this rhetoric has been developed in a recent government report titled Global Britain in a Competitive Age, where the report notes that having left the EU, the UK has started a new chapter in our history, where we'll be open to the world, free to tread our own path, blessed with a global network of friends, end quote. These ideas of freedom, sovereignty, and taking back control are an integral part of the Brexit campaign. Eurosceptic MPs had long subscribed to the simplistic Thatcherite maxim that red tape invariably stifles enterprise and cutting it unleashes growth. The promises of the report focus on how Britain plans to re-emerge as a science and tech superpower, quote, and will, quote, also continue to be renowned for our leadership in security, diplomacy and development, conflict resolution and poverty reduction. Such bullish imaginings, however, ring semi-hollow regarding the devastation the nation has sustained during the COVID-19 pandemic. The UK has taken the heaviest economic hit among G7 nations, and its death rate has been one of the steepest in Europe. The UK has a £2 trillion public debt at a 70-year high, which is rising fast. Such developments pose the question, is Britain truly still a, a leading world power? Reports have suggested that Westminster will have to get used to life as a middle power on the world stage, where the country can still play a central role in, a role in international politics, reconciled to middle power status, using its main external partner, the European Union, to magnify global influence. So the question beckons, is the global Britain vision an attempt to rebuild Britain's image as a great world power, or is global Britain a deceit, a masking facade of a Britain long in decline and struggling with its visions of exceptionalism and grandeur? Deprived, deprived of its biggest market, Europe, seeking solace in a declining Commonwealth, is Britain truly a realisable goal or another Johnson soundbite? So my first question is, what do you think of the global Britain project and is it a realistic goal? I think it's certainly something we should be working towards, um, reaching out to other parts of the world. Um, if we if we just merely got out of the EU and then turned our backs on the rest of the world, there'd be nothing left for us. And because of, of the fact that we live in such a globalised age, we need um, the rest of the world to help us out in that situation. Um, but re-establishing our relationships in the way that we used to is going to be quite a, a way to renegotiate it. And he seems to be parking on the past quite a lot there um, in terms of his his influence but the way we went about dealing with other nations in the past and and, and the victorian age it was the, yeah was was through brutality and oppression um which is something we won't be able to get away with um at all and and is something that should be condemned outright anyway um so it'll be interesting to see if how much he relies on the past in his in his in our, in our renegotiation of our place in the world um and and how much it, it will he'll be innovative um i guess the push towards tech and science is is, is part of that um and and so is a crucial factor that we need to think about and invest in um uh, i think it's to, we have to wait to to see how successful it is um i hope i hope that we've made the right call. Yeah, similar to um, what Sasha said, I, I don't think we actually have much choice really. We've just removed ourselves from uh, one of the biggest trading blocks and now we're, I think there's not really any other way we can go. So whether it is rhetoric or whether it really is a um, sustainable and viable plan, um, the government has to create a new image of Britain as uh global friendly because if they 
unless they turn the current image that we, unless if they don't turn the current image that we have around um, of us voluntarily removing ourselves um, from the European Union, then it won't, we won't have a good reputation. So I, I don't think there's any other way they could have gone about it. And um, it'll be interesting to see if they really can follow through with it. I, th- I do, uh, I agree with what you've both said. And I think that a vision, a guiding vision for our nation is a very important thing. And um, the sentiment of the global Britain, which recognises that obviously economically speaking, we are no longer a great power or a superpower, so to say. But uh, what, what I did like uh, through reading through this, um, the proposals on the government report is that we're really looking to utilise our cultural capital and our soft power dipl- diplomatic abilities. And I think that's a really positive way for moving forward and remaining a key player on the international stage. Just going back to that point of um, the need for a vision, I think the UK for a long time has lacked any vision that could rally people both on the left, centre and right, that could rally them all together behind this idea of what they want Britain to be. Brexit obviously completely divided the nation and fractured any vision because it offered two competing visions, a vision of a Britain secure within the European Union or a Britain separate from it, which did not necessarily develop, obviously global Britain coming out of the Brexiteer camp. But what I think now is uh, uniting these camps and the tribalism within British politics. I think a united vision of a global Britain, which celebrates our culture and looks to bring bring it to the world in the sense of fostering positive diplomatic relations, but also resolving humanitarian crises. I think that's a positive move, and um, I do welcome it from the government if they do execute it correctly. So that, that that's just my opinion on um, on this idea of global Britain. Are we going to get stuck in that position, though, that we've been criticised in the past, you know, in these diplomatic peacemaking uh, talks? Are we going to be sticking our noses in places that we shouldn't be? I mean, are we going to have another Tony Blair sort of event? I mean, I hope not. Um, I, I'm also on the optimistic side. I don't know if you guys have heard of the, the acronym by the Brexiteers called CAMZUK, which is like Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK. It's like meant to be a post-EU kind of organisation of Commonwealth countries to get the ball rolling. I think I, th- I think it's an interesting idea. I think um, something that's come out of Brexit, which is positive around um, the, U- the European nations and members of the EU, is it started to highlight flaws within the European Union as an institution. Uh, and that doesn't mean that the vote leave argument uh, was right about its criticisms of the EU, because obviously, um, as we have come to find out, it did manip- manipulate public opinion. But what it did raise to light and it kind of helped give to a credible voice to people that did have opinions on it is the fact that there are a lot of shortcomings within the European Union as an institution. And I think that forming, um, going back to the Commonwealth and forming uh, unions with Commonwealth nations, I think is a positive, it's a positive step regarding the context of globalisation. Yeah, on the on the anti-EU stuff, it does seem like we've escaped a bit of the bureaucracy. So the question would be, would we want to go back into more bureaucracy and form? that sort of relationship or do we want a completely free trade that's what they want in a free trade and you know dipping into each honey pot of every country so I, I don't personally know what would be best I'm not a diplomat and I'm certainly no expert but I I'd like to think that one day soggy fish and chips are being sold in Mexico instead of an all-day breakfast 
I think um, that 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 argument of um, European bureaucracy. Uh, bureaucracy so um, what what it has shown is that centralized European bodies uh, can effectively act as lobbying forms for neoliberals who look to profit from nations. And the problem seems to be that governments can hide behind the European Council and the European Commission on behalf on behalf of the corporate lobbyists. But the problem is we are also welcoming such lobbying efforts. So yeah, I, I definitely say be cautious of um, leaving one form of bureau uh, over bureaucratic organization to form another. Um, yeah, so I do, I do agree with that sentiment, Alex. Thank you for tuning in and a special shout out to Johnny Hunt for production. That's it for now, you're in focus.